from the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah. This is Obscure, Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, George Nologist, and Southern Gentleman Esquire, Michael Ian Black, finishing up some good old-fashioned Georgia pralines. I just I thought, you know, when I started this recording, I thought, well, they'll be done by the time I start recording. But, you know, you eat those pralines, and pralines are just pecans that have been, I don't know, dusted and sweetened and some such thing. And, but what I forgot is that they'll, they, they, you know, they'll crumble up in your mouth, and then you got little pieces of pecan just sort of scattered all over your mouth and hugging your gums and making everything a little bit more difficult when you're trying to speak aloud. And uh, there's a, there's a, a farmer's market here every Saturday there at Forsyth Park and you walk down the long corridor almost of Forsyth Park and there's all kinds of vendors there and one of them was selling pralines and they just looked so damn delectable. Bought three bags, three for ten, four ounces each. I bought red velvet cake pralines and and uh, and butter pound cake pralines and then uh, sweet Salty and spicy pralines. That's all one. Sweet, salty, spicy. And who boy, they weren't kidding about the spicy. They were spicy. But anyway, these were some of the red velvet cake ones. And I thought, well, let me just let me just get a little something, you know, in the old gob before I start recording. And that turned out to have been a mistake. Because even as I'm talking to you now, I'm trying to work out the pralines with my tongue and, you know, get them out there so that I can speak melodiously with you as we undergo this new chapter of Wuthering Heights. We are about to start a new chapter. That's always so exciting. Hopefully it will distract you from the heat. You know, normally in summer, when I say normally, I mean this is my second time, but normally in summer here in Savannah, we're the ones complaining about the heat, but I guess the whole world is under heat advisory these days, you know, 100 degree Weather just about everywhere you look. People dropping dead, melting into puddles of goo right there on the street. Fires breaking out, railways melting, airplanes dissolving, the whole thing. You know, it's 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 climate change, of course. And somehow, and this is going to sound Pollyanna-ish, I know of me, but somehow the fact that, you know, the whole world is undergoing this and it's terrible everywhere and things are awful everywhere, in a, in a weird way, it makes me optimistic because I'm like, well, you know, things are horrible, but, you know, we're we're getting by, you know. Yeah, we're in a climate emergency, but we're getting by. Yeah, somehow it makes me think, you know what, we're just going to kind of muddle through this. We're just going to kind of muddle through uh, the conflagration of the planet. And somehow we'll emerge on the other side. You know, there'll probably be fewer of us and fewer animal species and you know the water tables will have risen and Santa Monica and Virginia Beach will be underwater and you know Amsterdam will be just a distant memory but somehow we'll muddle through don't you think maybe you don't think I don't know I don't know what you think about anything these days which is why most of my energy is focused on the usual you know Diet Coke naps poker and then reading this good book to all of you people, it is uh, it is a source of endless delight and joy to bring you the classics this season. Of course, the great American novel *Wuthering Heights* by Emily Bronte, Isabella, 
poor, poor Isabella has just concluded her letter to Mrs. Dean over there at Thrushcross Grange, telling of her miseries and woes and her regrets at being ensorcelled by the horrible Heathcliff, who, uh, you know, it's not clear what his designs are. We just know there he's malintentioned. That's all we really know about Heathcliff and the darkness in his heart. Maybe Isabella throw her, Isabella throw herself off a tower or something. That would be good. Or, or uh, walk over to the cliffs there and hurl herself into the churning seas. That would be good too. But I guess we won't know until we resume the book. And so let us continue now with chapter 14 of Wuthering Heights. So now the letter has closed and Nellie uh, resumes her narration to Lockwood, who is narrating to us. As soon as I had perused this epistle, I went to the master and informed him that his sister had arrived at the Heights and sent me a letter expressing her sorrow for Mrs. Linton's situation and her ardent desire to see him, with a wish that he would transmit to her, as early as possible, some token of forgiveness by me. She just said, uh, you know, don't tell anyone, and then what does she do? She goes and, and tells everyone. Okay, so uh, so Linton says, so this is, you know, Isabella's brother, Linton, Edgar Linton says, Forgiveness, said Linton. I have nothing to forgive her, Ellen. You may call it Wuthering Heights this afternoon, if you like, and say that I am not angry, but I'm sorry to have lost her, especially as I can never think she'll be happy. It is out of the question my going to see her, however. We are eternally divided, and should she really wish to oblige me, let her persuade the villain she has married to leave the country. And won't you write her a little note, sir? I asked imploringly. No, he answered. It is needless. My communication with Heathcliff's family shall be as sparing as his with mine. It shall not exist. So, you know, he says, oh, I'm not mad at her, but I'm, at the same time, I'm not going to communicate with her either. You know, these prideful people, these Lintons, these, this terrible pride that infects us all and keeps us from following our hearts, you know, out of, out of what? Out of some sense of what? I mean, pride doesn't quite explain uh, that feeling that we all get, that, that intransience, you know, that inability to move aside the stone covering one's heart. Well, why? Why do we have that? What, what purpose does that serve, really? If he succumbs and, 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 and goes to Isabella, she's going to be like, you big fucking dope. You know, you were wrong. I was right. You said you weren't going to talk to me again. Now here you are. You know, like, what's, what's the point of this? You know, they're just, why, why prolong their miseries? Who do they have if not each other? Mr. Edgar's coldness depressed me exceedingly, and all the way from the Grange I puzzled my brains how to put more heart into what he said when I repeated it, and how to soften his refusal of even a few lines to console Isabella. I dare say she'd been on the watch for me since morning. I saw her looking through the lattice as I came up the garden causeway, and I nodded to her, but she drew back, as if afraid of being observed. I entered without knocking. There never was such a dreary, dismal scene as the formerly cheerful house presented. 
I must confess that if I had been in the young lady's place, I would at least have swept the hearth and wiped the tables with a duster. But she already partook of the pervading spirit of neglect which encompassed her. Her pretty face was wan and listless, her hair uncurled, some locks hanging lankly down, and some carelessly twisted round her head. Probably she had not touched her dress since yesterday evening. Hindley was not there. Mr. Heathcliff sat at a table, turning over some papers in his pocket-book, but he rose when I appeared, asked me how I did quite friendly, and offered me a chair. He was the only thing there that seemed decent— and I thought he never looked better. So much had circumstances altered their positions that he would certainly have struck a stranger as a born and bred gentleman and his wife as a thorough little slattern. Well, you know, there are those creatures, aren't there, that feed on the miseries of others and, you know, suck the marrow from their bones and and get all the life and vitality from them that they can and it is in this manner that they sustain themselves and it seems as though Heathcliff might be such a demon as this well no wonder he's happy he's he's got another miserable soul under his roof somebody else to well, to keep down i guess somebody else to keep in their place. And uh, so, sure, he looks, he looks fine, doesn't he? You know, you wonder what, he's, what he was doing in his lost years, what, what, uh, what blood he stole in those years as he was wandering the countryside, the great American countryside, looking to make his fortune and make his mark in the world. Hard to say. So, uh, you know, his terrible little wife there comes forward. She came forward eagerly to greet me and held out one hand to take the expected letter. I shook my head. She wouldn't understand the hint, but followed me to a sideboard where I went to lay my bonnet, and importuned me in a whisper to give her directly what I had brought. Heathcliff guessed the meaning of her maneuvers and said, If you have got anything for Isabella, as no doubt you have, Nellie, give it to her. You needn't make a secret of it. We have no secrets between us. Oh, I have nothing, I replied, thinking it best to speak the truth at once. My master bid me to tell his sister that she must not expect either a letter or a visit from him at present. He sends his love, ma'am, and his wishes for your happiness, and his pardon for the grief you have occasioned. But he thinks that after this time, his household and the household here should drop intercommunication, as nothing good could come of keeping it up. Well, I mean, she, you know, she just, she, she, she said it straight. Isn't that always the way with bad news? You just tell it straight and let the chips fall. And, uh, you know, if I were a doctor, that's what I'd be doing. Uh, you know, I regret to tell you, you've got herpes, you know, and, and, uh, and there's just no, there's nothing to be done for it. You're just going to have pustules there for the rest of your life. Mrs. Heathcliff's lip quivered slightly and she returned to her seat in the window. Her husband took his stand on the hearthstone near me and began to put questions concerning Catherine. I told him as much as I thought proper of her illness, and he extorted from me by cross-examination most of the facts connected with its origin. 
I blamed her as she deserved for bringing it all on herself and ended by hoping that he would follow Mr. Linton's example and avoid future interference with his family for good or evil. Mrs. Linton is now just recovering, I said. She'll never be like she was, but her life is spared, and if you really have a regard for her, you'll shun crossing her way again. Nay, you'll move out of this country entirely, and that you may not regret it, I'll inform you Catherine Linton is as different from your old friend Catherine Earnshaw as that young lady is different from me. Her appearance has changed greatly, her character much more so. And the person who is compelled of necessity to be her companion will only sustain his affection hereafter by the remembrance of what she once was, by common humanity and a sense of duty. That is quite possible, remarked Heathcliff, forcing himself to seem calm. Quite possible that your master should have nothing but common humanity and a sense of duty to fall back on. But do you imagine that I shall leave Catherine to his duty and humanity, and can you compare my feelings respecting Catherine to his? Before you leave this house, I must exact a promise from you that you'll get me an interview with her. Consent or refuse, I will see her. What do you say? I say, Mr. Heathcliff, I replied, you must not. You never shall, through any means. Another encounter between you and the master would kill her altogether. With your aid, that may be avoided, he continued. And should there be danger of such an event, should he be the cause of adding a single trouble more to her existence, why, I think I shall be justified in going to extremes. I wish you had sincerity enough to tell me whether Catherine would suffer greatly from his loss. The fear that she would restrains me. Oh, so he's going to kill her? He's going to kill Edgar now? You know, what has Edgar ever done to this guy? Yeah, when they were kids, they had a little tussle, they had a little thing, and whatever. But Edgar has turned out to be a perfectly respectable gentleman, and Heathcliff has turned out to be a real cad. And what is the resentment? The resentment is that he's got Catherine instead of Heathcliff. But, you know, be that as it may, uh, you know, they traded women folk. You know, they swapped, as it were. You know, Heathcliff has Isabella. Edgar has Catherine. Everybody's miserable. And that's just the way it's going to be. Nothing good has come of these relations. And again, it is pride. It is, and, and, and let's be honest, it is, it is Catherine's pride also that put her in this predicament. It is Catherine who was unwilling to abscond with Heathcliff when she had the chance, the no-name, the blackguard, the vagabond Heathcliff. She could have gone with him rather than settle down with Edgar. But her own pride, her own station in life, her own fears of the unknown would not let her do it. And so she has come to this. And it is Heathcliff's pride that is his own motivating, animating characteristic in this. His pride at being scorned as a child and being abused and humiliated. He is no happier here than anybody else. He left, so why did he come back to seek his revenge? What is revenge, if not the vilest manifestation of pride? Isabella, her own pride, has put her in this situation. Really, the only one who I think is really not acting out of pride is the only decent person in this scenario. Well, he is too, but Edgar is the least, has the least pride here. I mean, he said, I'm going to... 
I'm never going to speak to you again if you do this. And now, you know, well, so what? Yes, yes, it is his pride that is preventing him from resuming his relations with his sister. And it is just terrible, terrible, terrible all the way around. And then you've got Nellie. Happy Nellie, the go-between, shuttling between the houses, giving gossip, dispensing her little homespun pearls of wisdom. So uh, let's take a little break, you know. Uh, we'll, we'll meditate on the nature of pride, and we will be back in a moment here on Obscure. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Back on Obscure, our meditations on the nature of pride having now come to an end. Because what are we going to do? Meditate? No, we got a book to read. My God. You know, we're back with Heathcliff. You know, he says, I'm going to go see Catherine, you know. And the only thing that's keeping me from killing Edgar is the fear that it would hurt her. And there you see the distinction between our feelings. Had he been in my place and I in his Though I hated him with a hatred that turned my life to gall, I never would have raised a hand against him. You may look incredulous if you please. I never would have banished him from her society as long as she desired his. The moment her regard ceased, I would have torn his heart out and drank his blood. <laughs> I mean, you know, he is vampiric, right? He, he He's more of a monster than the creature in Frankenstein, by a lot. Because he is motivated purely by pettiness and revenge. Whereas the creature was motivated, in essence, by a desire to be loved. And look, you could say Heathcliff, ultimately you boil it down, he was a little, you know, street urchin brought into a house, rejected by his siblings, blah de blah you know, all he wanted to do was find a little place there, a little corner of his own, a little room under the staircase, as it were, and he could not even find that. And so, you know, his 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 love turned to malice like the creature's, but he had opportunities to escape that, whereas the creature did not. So he said, I would have torn his heart out and drank his blood, but till then, if you don't believe me, you don't know me. Till then, I would have died by inches before I touched a single hair on his head. And yet, I interrupted, you have no scruples in completely ruining all hopes of her perfect restoration by thrusting yourself into her remembrance now when she's nearly forgotten you and involving her in a new tumult of discord and distress. You suppose she has nearly forgotten me? He said. Oh, Nellie, you know she has not. You know as well as I do that for every thought she spends on Linton, she spends a thousand on me. At a most miserable period of my life, I had a notion of the kind. It haunted me on my return to the neighborhood last summer. But only her own assurance could make me admit the horrible idea again. 
and then Linton would be nothing, nor Hindley, nor all the dreams that ever I dreamt. Two words would comprehend my future, death and hell. The existence after losing her would be hell. So now we're finally getting a peek into Heathcliff's dark heart. Remember, I, we were talking about this before because we understood Catherine to a large extent. She had said that he is more me than me and um, he is everything and, and I am nothing and, and we are meant to be twinned here in this life and now, and, but, but we never heard Heathcliff say the same until this moment. And he had been motivated. Only her own assurance could make me admit the horrible idea again that, that she had forgotten him. And that's why he came back. He needed to hear from her the truth. What was she to him? If the answer is nothing, well, then Linton would be nothing and Hindley would be nothing. All the dreams he had ever dreamt would be nothing. Two words would comprehend his future death and hell, because existence after losing her would be hell. And it's a curious relationship they have, you know, because even when they're together, you know, there's a, there's a kind of companionship, but it's not even an amiable companionship. It's a codependency. It's not healthy. It's not fun. It's not light of spirit. It may have been when they were kids, but it isn't now. He came back to reassure himself, or at least to get to gather the truth about Catherine's feelings for him. Once ascertained, he was hopeless to really do anything about it other than continue to torture her with it. If it really is love he, he has in his heart for her, Nellie's right, what he would do is quit the country and let her heal let her at least attempt to forget him, but his own narcissism prevents it. And so if he can't have her, he's going to take everything else. And, you know, I was comparing him to the creature a moment ago, and actually maybe the, the, the comparisons are more apt than I thought because the creature seeking love, really, ultimately, cannot get, get it. And so what does he do? He destroys... Frankenstein, not by attacking him directly, but by going after everything he holds dear. And that seems to be the exact same case with Heathcliff here. Now, I stand by that the love that he seeks is of a different variety. It's, it's something much more corroded than the pure love of humanity that the creature had, or at least the, the, the want of acceptance it goes beyond humanity what the creature had, something, something more than that, something more ineffable. But, but Heathcliff's attention and focus is on a single individual, and if he cannot have her, well, then he will destroy everything and everyone in her orbit, beginning with the Earnshaws and then Isabella. And he says, I would not harm a hair on Edgar's head if... I thought it would cause her pain. But the moment I didn't think that, I would drink his blood. They're very similar, you know? They're similar creatures. It's just that Heathcliff's heart is much darker. Yet I was a fool to fancy for a moment that she valued Edgar Linton's attachment more than mine. 
If he loved with all the powers of his puny being, he couldn't love as much in eighty years as I could in a day. And Catherine has a heart as deep as I have. The sea could be as readily contained in that horse trowel as her whole affection be monopolized by him. Tush! <laughs> well, there's a, uh, there's a, there's an exclamation you don't hear every day. Tush! T-U-S-H exclamation mark. Tush! is scarcely a degree dearer to her than her dog or her horse. It is not in him to be loved like me. How can she love in him what he has not? Catherine and Edgar are as fond of each other as any two people can be, cried Isabella with sudden vivacity. No one has a right to talk in that manner, and I won't hear my brother depreciated in silence. Your brother is wondrous fond of you too, isn't he? Observed Heathcliff scornfully. He turns you adrift on the world with surprising alacrity. He is not aware of what I suffer, she replied. I didn't tell him that. You have been telling him something, then. You have written, have you? To say that I was married, I did write. You saw the note. And nothing since? No. My young lady is looking sadly the worse for her change of condition, I remarked. Somebody's love comes short in her case. Obviously. Whose, I may guess, but perhaps I shouldn't say. I should guess it was her own, said Heathcliff. She degenerates into a mere slut. <laughs> God. <laughs> oh, she degenerates into a mere slut. Why would he say that? He's the one that wooed her. He's the one that spun his little magic lasso around her and pulled her close and took her off to the country and married her and now calls her a slut? Terrible. She is tired of trying to please me uncommonly early. You'd hardly credit it. But the very morrow of our wedding, she was weeping to go home. However, she'll suit this house so much better for not being over nice, and I'll take care she does not disgrace me by rambling abroad. Well, sir, returned I, I hope you'll consider that Mrs. Heathcliff is accustomed to be looked after and waited on, and that she's been brought up like an only daughter whom everyone was ready to serve. You must let her have a maid to keep things tidy about her, and you must treat her kindly. Whatever be your notion of Mr. Edgar, you cannot doubt that she has a capacity for strong attachments, or she wouldn't have abandoned the elegancies and comforts and friends of her former home, to fix contentedly in such a wilderness as this with you. She abandoned them under a delusion, he answered picturing in me a hero of romance and expecting unlimited indulgences from my chivalrous devotion. I can hardly regard her in the light of a rational creature, so obstinately as she persisted in forming a fabulous notion of my character and acting on the false impressions she cherished. But at last, I think she begins to know me. I don't perceive the silly smiles and grimaces that provoked me at first, and the senseless and capability of discerning that I was in earnest when I gave her my opinion of her infatuation in herself. It was a marvelous effort of perspicacity. I think that's the second time we've seen that word here in this novel. Uh, Nelly says it several chapters ago, and now Heathcliff says it, perspicacity to discover that I did not love her. I believed at one time no lessons could teach her that, and yet it is poorly learnt. For this morning she announced, as a piece of appalling intelligence, that I had actually succeeded in making her hate me. A positive labor of Hercules, I assure you, if it be achieved, I have cause to return thanks. Can I trust your assertion, Isabella? Are you sure you hate me? 
If I let you alone for half a day, won't you come sighing and wheedling to me again? I dare say she would rather I had seemed all tenderness before you. It wounds her vanity to have the truth exposed. But I don't care who knows that the passion was wholly on one side, and I never told her a lie about it. She cannot accuse me of showing a bit of deceitful softness. The first thing she saw me do on coming out of the grange was to hang up her little dog, and when she pleaded for it, the first words I uttered were a wish that I had the hanging of every being belonging to her except one. Possibly she took that exception for herself, but no brutality disgusted her. I suppose she has an innate admiration of it, if only her precious person were secure from injury. Now, was it not the depth of absurdity, of genuine idiocy, for that pitiful, slavish, mean-minded brack? B-R-A-C-H with a footnote! And you know, I love the footnotes, especially when Heathcliff is going on and on. I mean, this is the, first, this is the longest we've ever heard him talk, and, you know, frankly, he's a monster. Brack! Bitch. Oh, dear. Well, of course it means bitch. Uh, of course. Jesus, he's just horrible. Why doesn't she leave? Why doesn't she leave? So he says, nor was it the depth of absurdity, of genuine idiocy, for that pitiful, slavish, mean-minded brack to dream that I could love her. Tell your master, Nellie, that I never, in all my life, met with such an abject thing as she is. She even disgraces the name of Linton, and I've sometimes relented from pure lack of invention in my experiments on what she could endure, and still creep shamefully cringing back. But tell him also to set his fraternal and magisterial heart at ease, that I keep strictly within the limits of the law. I have avoided, up to this period, giving her the slightest right to claim a separation, and what's more, she'd thank nobody for dividing us. If she desired to go, she might. The nuisance of her presence outweighs the gratification to be derived from tormenting her. And that will conclude that. So, okay, I mean, he's just, you know, he's just laying it all out there. She's this terrible, silly, little stupid thing. Uh, The very first thing she saw me do was hang up her dog. You know, you remember uh, Mrs. Dean came across the dog half dead laying there in the road, you know, all tied up. And uh, and she said, you know, what are you doing to my dog? And he said, well, I would hang everything. I would hang everything around you except for one thing. And and, you know, she stupidly thought he meant her and somehow took that to be flattery of some sort. And so, you know, in the way of teenage girls, she developed this crush. Because it's boring out there in Thrushcross Grange, you know? It's not like, it's not like today with the MTV and, and, and the America Online that you can, you can go to the chat rooms and, and talk to friendly teens from across all of America. You know, she, she's stuck out there in the sticks with little to entertain her. And then this handsome stranger comes bounding in, you know, hanging dogs and stuff. And she's like, oh, look at him hanging dogs. I could see myself with him. And she saw how Catherine was entranced by him. And she developed a little crush. And Heathcliff said, don't, don't develop a crush on me. I'm no good. I'm telling you, I'm no good at all. And of course, that only made her want him more. And so he acquiesced for the purpose of torturing her, the way he tortured the dog itself. He brought her, brought her to Wuthering Heights 
and has made her life a misery ever since, but all within keeping the letter within the letter of the law, so that she has no grounds to call for a separation. But at the same time, he's saying, look, if she wants to go, she can go. You know, she's more of a pain in the ass than she's worth. It's not as much fun torturing her as I thought it would be. So if she wants to walk out of here, just let, you know, let her go. Will she go? I don't know. I would. That would, be, that would be all the excuse I needed to pack up my parasols and get my petticoats all, you know, straightened up and head out the door with Nellie. Well, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you? And will, will she do it? I don't know. What will keep her there? Is it that horrible word again, pride? Hard to say, but I guess we will find out on another persipatious episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedron. We rely on you, the listeners, for support, so please go to patreon.com slash Black, and you will get early access to ad-free episodes and more content from me. That's patreon.com slash Black. See you next time. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.